Good morning. I'm used to coming here on Thursday, <coughs> Thursday evening, which is a much smaller group. I'm kind of dazzled by <laughs> so many of, of us together. I'm just back from a retreat at Jikoji. Um, maybe some of you know Jikoji. It's it's just above Saratoga, up on the on the ridge, um, uh, off of Skyline Boulevard. Uh, it, it's a kind of rattle trap retreat center, you could say, but a very beautiful place to do a retreat. And the subject that came up for me um, that I'm still holding in my mind is is about devotion. Um, Zen, like Vipassana, is not what we could call a devotional practice, uh, particularly. Um, Zen is sometimes called self-practice that you bring yourself to the cushion and you sit down. It's a kind of willing, um, determined situation. And, and I think it's the same in Vipassana as well. We come and we sit. Um, there's another flavor of Buddhism called Pure Land, Uh, Most Japanese are Pure Land Buddhists, if they're Buddhists. Uh, And in Pure Land, um, it's not like that at all. Where uh, when you come, you come to offer yourself completely as a kind of hopeless being. Um, it, It can't be helped. This is just the way it is. And so you throw yourself on the mercy of the Buddha. I've often thought that uh, I know in Zen practice, if you sit um, intentionally for a long period of time, you slowly begin to soften and begin to surrender. And I suspect that Pure Land, if you uh, surrender long enough, becomes stronger and stronger and more empowered and that there's a place where both practices meet. Very interesting to, to, to feel a way along in this way. It, it's, it's very subtle in a way. And yet it's, it's an important part of how we are on the cushion and also what we bring to the world. In Zen, the teacher is called the doshi and does a kind of dance around the bowing mat in front of the altar. You bow at the end of the mat and then you go up to the the altar and then you bow some more and then you go back and to the end of the mat and you bow and then you do prostrations and then you stand up and then you go back and you offer incense. it's, it's like a choreographed dance, very beautiful dance. But of course it's extra. 
way, it's, it's extra. And to, to, to see where devotional practice uh, um, fits into our life um, without becoming um, ritualistic. There are uh, people who really um, cling to ritual and make of it something that's, that's um, a kind of obsession. We have to do it, and we have to do it this way. And the reason we do it becomes uh, invisible. There's a wonderful story about Philip Kaplow, who's one of the first Americans who became a Zen teacher. When he went to Japan, he'd already read as much as he could about Buddhism. And uh, he thought he understood it pretty well. And he went to a Zen master and asked if he could become the student there. And the master said, well, we'll see about that. You come into the temple first and we'll offer some incense. Kaplow was very surprised. He said, are you sure you're a Zen master? He said, yes, 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 come in. And so they went up to the altar and the Zen master bowed deeply. And Kaplow looked at him and he said, I thought you were supposed to burn the Buddha and spit on the altar. And the master said, you spit, I bows. Kaplow eventually became probably one of the most conventional Zen teachers there ever was, where everything had to be exactly right and very, very ritualistic. But he went with a beatnik mind. All the beatniks used to study Zen, Jack Kerouac being one, and um, had the idea that you threw it all away and anything goes. doesn't quite work that way. So, if we have an altar and a Buddha on it, what does that mean? It's a kind of projection, isn't it? it helps us sometimes to see out there what's in here, what seems to be out there, and what seems to be in here. The truth is, it's the same place. When my um, father-in-law died some years ago, It was quite devastating. He had been such a close part of our lives. And my teacher um, offered to come. Coben came to the house, which he almost never did. Um, And he bustled about and he helped us set up an altar. Very, very simple. A picture of Papa and a bouquet of flowers just a little one, and a candle. And 
I guess some incense also. And all of a sudden, the loss that we felt changed into something else. It was like he had brought Papa back into the room and into our lives, transformed. But we could see, because it was focused out here, we could see how the in-here part of our, our relationship with him still lived and would always live. So it serves a very beautiful function if we're uh, aware of what it is. If it becomes a sort of mumbo-jumbo thing, uh, Krishnamurti used to say, if you put a Coke bottle on your mantelpiece and just stood in front of it like this and said, Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola, (laughs) Coca-Cola, as a mantra, that that would be just as good as any other mantra that you could possibly say. Um, He was very scornful of all of that stuff. And yet, and yet he too offered himself as a focus. Although he, in one sense, brushed it away, he appeared for us over and over as something to to see and project upon and recognize in ourself what's there, what's here. Very generous, very generous kind of teaching he did. Very curious kind. And so even here in this simple place, Uh, Buddhas appear. It's been interesting to come back over and over from from the beginning Um, and little by little Buddhas have shown up. Maha Pajapati has shown up, a very wonderful Buddha. Just been studying about women in early Buddhism Buddha's stepmother, his mother's sister, a brilliant teacher, one of the most brilliant teachers of her time. And there she is, shows up here. It's very helpful, very helpful for us to to be embraced by these images But there's another way um, that doesn't require some special place and some special time. Um, My um, 
Tibetan friend, uh, Tinley, grew up in a in a, a temple in India. Her father was a great Tibetan Rinpoche, and um, so she's been trained her whole life in Tibetan Buddhism. And I was walking with her in Berkeley um, a few years ago at just about this time of year. And everything had just suddenly begun to burst into bloom. And as we walked along, we walked past this gorgeous quince bush that was so vibrant, so utterly, utterly beautiful. And she stopped and she bowed to it. She bowed to the bush. And she said, oh, I dedicate this bush to Buddha. This bush is for Buddha. It's like the whole thing just became transformed in her mind and in my mind too. And maybe in the mind of the bush. It was an instant kind of recognition of something. (coughs) Many years ago when I first started uh, serving the altar, was very shaky, very scared. I was always very shy, and the, the thought of going up and actually trying to get the incense to stand up straight and not fall over was a very scary thing. And it took me a while to understand what it was that was happening there. Um, it wasn't idol worship. Um, it was hard to say exactly what it was. But one day as I was doing that dance around the mat, I suddenly realized that um, it's called a service. You do a service at the altar. I thought, hmm. So serving... And I began to realize that everything that I do, that anyone does, is a service. That we serve the food onto the table. We serve ourselves to eat. We serve our children in a million different ways. We, we actually serve as we receive, and as well as when we give. Um, Our whole life, you could say, is a form of service. Conscious, sometimes, mostly unconscious. And that if we're conscious as we serve, our life becomes suddenly, has a a new dimension. uh, A new and very wonderful dimension. That we could, though we wouldn't, bow much more often than we do. Bow to the the clerk at the grocery store. Um, Bow to the policeman on the corner. Bow to the homeless lady curled up in a corner somewhere. That in one sense, 
everything that we do is uh, service. And that as we recognize, we're recognizing how we not only are all together, we're not thrown together, we belong together. We're one body together. And so then I think of how Shakyamuni Buddha lived, who had no altars, had no home, and just quietly walked from place to place, and quietly spoke with people. His life, you could say, was a life of meeting. And he was willing to meet with anyone who came along. A cowherd, a hysterical woman, a rich man, a courtesan, a king, a bum, a student. If you read Shakyamuni Buddha's life, it's so interesting how he was willing to meet and speak with anyone. It's why he was so uh, light. In the very beginning of his teaching, um, he had to make a rule because parents and children got very upset. He would come to town and people would want to be with him so much that they would just walk out the door of their own homes and leave. Um, and Buddha said, oh, that's not, that won't do. You have to get permission. You can't leave your family unless you get permission from them to go. But that's the kind of effect that he had because he was willing to be with people in that way, in in just the most simple way of accepting and serving. Although he had, you could say, nothing to give in the way of things, he had attention and compassion and love to give. And so in the end, Devotional practice uh, can take place anywhere. We don't um, need the refuge of, of a beautiful cathedral or a chapel or where I usually practice, which is a beautiful little place, the Quaker Center in San Jose, which also hosts the uh, Wednesday Vipassana group. If you have a chance to go there, it's about 150 years old, and it's just a little wooden um, room with little stiff-backed wooden chairs that we push back so that we can sit in a circle like this. But even that isn't necessary. We can we can meet and serve anywhere, and that. That, if we need to know what to do when we stand up, which is often the question that we bring to this practice, we do our practice, we sit. Sometimes we sit and sit and sit. But at some point, we have to get up. And then, 
What do we do? How do we live? How do we bring this into the world as the world is? So I think that's what I meant to say. Um, Do you have questions, discussion? Yes. So how do you think about, you said, the the Buddha said people shouldn't leave their families without getting permission, and this was like an important teaching. Um, How do you make sense of that, knowing that he left his wife and child, I think, without asking their permission? Yes, he did. He was a naughty boy. He knew he wouldn't get permission because he had been predicted from the day he was born that he would either be a great king or a great teacher. And his father had done everything in his power to keep him from knowing about the world so that he would not become a teacher. So he knew it was set up against his ever doing it. And he had, if he was going to be the teacher that he was born to be, then he had to uh, do what he did. He, but he came back as soon as he was established, and it took a long time. It took him six years of tapas practice, of, of yogi practice, of starving himself, before he um, then began the practice that led him to enlightenment, and then to uh, go out and gather disciples and begin to practice. And then he went back home and um, was greeted with great joy. And eventually, uh, his, his father died, the king died, but his mother and his, or his stepmother and his wife and his son all joined uh, as disciples. And there's the famous story of, of Mahabhajapati, his stepmother, going and asking to join um, after his son had already joined and his saying no three times. This is a story that came many years, hundreds of years later that's been injected into the early stories of Buddha. But the, the truth is that he, he brought them all in. So it was kind of backward. But, um, and a lot of people are still upset about that story. They think he shouldn't have done that. But he did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. My question about devotional practice and and vowing and being appreciative, I guess for me, um, I do feel like I I have some kind of devotional practice. Uh, 
you know, and non-Buddhists as well, and just being appreciative of what things people do and and other people's acts of service. But uh, I guess the dilemma that I or I find myself is that sometimes I feel like I'm over apologetic, like somehow over apologetic. Like I feel like I don't know how to tease them out. Like that I'm sometimes I'm afraid to assert myself when or have this kind of um, autonomy. I can't explain it, but being appreciative and bowing and always acknowledging like someone's contributions and, and then. But always feeling I have to apologize for my... I can't explain it, but yes. there's a, it's a weird thing. Yes, yes, I know exactly. I, I'm like that, too. And it's, it's half. Um, it, it, I explain it to myself as... Uh, some people um, can see Buddha out there better. <laughs> and some people can see Buddha in here better. And uh, those of us who see Buddha out there um, often have a kind of shame about ourselves that uh, 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 blinds us to the Buddha in here. And so our practice is to um, kind of, of encourage and encourage our self-confidence and to learn to recognize who we are, who we really are, and to appreciate that so that we can bow to ourselves as well as to others. Some people have the opposite problem. They're so sure of themselves, you know, they're completely confident and kind of overlook everybody else. So uh, we're always working toward balance. So I, I know what what you and and I know you can do it. Yeah. I appreciate very much what you said about um uh Cobancino and your father in law and I hope this isn't too personal, but I know that Cobancino is not here in physical form right now and I was wondering if you still do any devotion around him or if there's any sharing that you would do around that because I would say a lot of the people that were mentors to me have passed and I'm just curious what you've done with that. Yes, yes. Oh, I think about this a lot and especially lately I've been thinking about it because I um, just came back from Europe where I uh, taught at couple of places that he had established over there and where I had seen him uh, a few years ago. And so it was a a very sentimental journey, you could say, in a way. Uh, And it began to feel, because I had been just to New Mexico and to Chicoji beforehand, that everywhere I went, I was finding a stone with his ashes under it. when a Zen master dies, his ashes are buried in all the different places where he uh, established his teaching. And so I went to Austria up way in the mountains and deep into the forest and 
there was a stone that was with Coben's ashes under, and it was where I had met him um, last in a serious way. So mm, he certainly was very much on my mind for for the last weeks. And then at Chikoji, of course, there's a stone with his ashes under, and um, and the young monk who's uh, practicing there now and is the teacher now wanted to do a memorial service and so we did a memorial service on Sunday before we left and um, or on Friday before we left and it was um, it felt too much it's been a couple of years since Coben died and they have a service once a, a month for a memorial service. They do that for Suzuki Roshi, so I suppose they do it in every Japanese Soto Zen uh, place that they continually memorialize. Soto Zen is famous for its funerals and its continual memorialization. People go back to the temples over and over for years and pay a lot of money to have their relatives remembered. And it's how the Soto Zen temples survive in Japan. It supports them. And, and so, in a way, it seems like a kind of racket to me. <laughs> I, I get irritated by the whole thing. Um, and yet, and yet, um, my, my feeling after that memorial service was that I didn't want to embalm my teacher. They're also talking about archiving all of his talks and archiving everything that ever happened around him. And I thought, that's fine, but from my side, he still lives. And that I want to live that uh, rather than involvement in some kind of uh, ceremony or some book somewhere. So there, there are both sides, and both sides are important. But the, the important part for me is when he died, when I heard he died, um, I felt like he just went whoosh, straight into my heart, where he'd always been. But that was the only place he was anymore. And so again, it wasn't a loss exactly. It was just this huge shift. And um, so that's what that's what it's been for me. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Yes. In some ways, I feel a little embarrassed about asking this question because people have been asking you so many profound questions this morning. <laughs> But this one, this one in its own way is profound. Yes. <laughs> I live in San Jose and I go to the market almost every day. And there's always a homeless person there. And I always look at them in the eyes and smile. And sometimes I give money. Mm-hmm. And I realized this week that I'm really tired of doing that. 
And I realized there's a lot of suffering in the world and that this homeless person is kind of symbolic. But what's really going on is I'm tired of giving money to homeless people. (laughs) And I know that sounds really cold and hard, and that makes me feel guilty. So I've got a lot of conflict and conversation going on in my mind because I do have a lot of genuine compassion for it. It's just that I feel like my freedom is restricted because sometimes I just like to go to the market. However, I realize that if I were in India, I would be finding this just walking down the street. So since this um, dialogue has been going on in my head, I'm just interested in your thoughts and Maybe you can help me come to grips with it. It's certainly to the subject, and it's a huge subject. It's really, really difficult. If you were in India, it would drive you crazy, because if you give to one person, a thousand will come and swarm around you and make your life miserable. And if you don't give, you see nothing but suffering everywhere you look. Um, So it's it's very difficult to come to terms with, and now we get to do it in in our world. The first homeless person I ever saw was in Paris after I'd grown up. I I never knew of such a thing. And and people were sleeping on the sidewalks in the... mm, I guess late 50s when I first went to to Europe. I couldn't believe it. And I didn't know what what you did about such a thing. Um, We still don't know what you do about such a thing. And it has to be according to our own own conscience. Um, People have different techniques. You know, nice middle-class people have different techniques for dealing with it. Some people just completely look away. Some people go home and write a check to Second Harvest or someplace like that. Uh, Some people go off to a third world country and set to work there or uh, serve in a soup kitchen. I mean, there are an infinite number of things to do. John Carroll, once a year at Thanksgiving, stuffs his pockets with $20 bills and goes out and hands them out once a year. Um, I I mean, you can use your ingenuity. Uh, It doesn't solve the problem. The problem is is deeper than that. And none of us can solve it. It's it's like all the other social problems that, that are so difficult and painful for us to, to see and, and make us feel so helpless because we ourselves can do so little. But we can do something. And it's what we're willing to do and where we feel our power lies. You know, if we give as a gesture, as an automatic gesture or to make our conscience feel better, that's one kind of giving. But if you give from your heart, it may not be in the way that is expected. There may be another way. Yeah. 
Thank you for your talk. Um, I was thinking about the form and the rituals and the statues. And I come from a religious tradition where statues and idols were a no-no. So when I started uh, with Buddhism, I was grateful that it was Vipassana and not any other tradition because Vipassana really plays down the ritual and keep even our center here, there's just a simple statue. And, and, and now I, it wouldn't bother me at all, but initially it would have gotten way in the way of me hearing the teaching because it would have felt, for one thing, as a Westerner, it felt different culturally. Yeah. But I think it would have gotten away for me that I was doing an alien thing, all this bowing and statues. and yeah. So I'm just grateful that I found Vipassana because it let me keep an open heart and an open mind to hear it. And now I think I'd be open to whatever mm. you know, the Zen teaching stuff. But anyway, this is my own personal yeah. And I don't know if anyone else experienced that. But. Oh, I'm, sh- I'm sure so. Uh, often Zen people say, you know, those Vipassana people, they have so many students because there's no, um, there's nothing else. It's just a bare practice. And, and I, I think some Zen people are kind of jealous, you know. <laughs> Not willing to give up the ritual, but kind of seeing, oh, Vipassana... Yeah, they do pretty well because people feel just that way. It's not intimidating. And then if you want to um, find something more in your practice, you can go up to Abhayagiri and find monks in robes and a Zendo and a really outstanding Buddha. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's the whole kit and caboodle uh, <laughs> Thai style. So you've got both, really. And it's lovely to have, have both. It's, it, this, this plainness serves very, very well. Thank you, Angie, for your talk. Um, I think we're in such an important part of history because we have teachers from Asia that are still here with us and some still coming over. But I think predominantly I see teachers like you and other American teachers setting up their own rituals. Yes. Oh, yes. In my tradition, we've changed everything. Um, And the Japanese are kind of upset with us. Uh, It's a very interesting relationship right now because... Um, Soto Zen is very bureaucratic in Japan. They've been around for many, many, many years and they have um, a very, how can I say, a very bureaucratic organization. And there are certain ways that you are supposed to relate to them and they're the ones who tell us, supposed to tell us what to do. Kogan always refused to join the Soto Zen set. He completely refused, even though he had relatives who were high up in the bureaucracy. And one relative who was the abbot of the greatest monastery in Japan, he still refused to join. Um, He was very difficult that way, but on purpose, because he felt that if it was going to work, take root in America, that it need not be Japanese. Just this last year, um, after a lot of 
difficulty, American Soto Zen students, teachers, um, declared to the Japanese Soto people that we were going to do our own finishing up rituals over here. It, it has been up till now that once you were transmitted and finished and could be a complete teacher, that then you had to go to Japan and go through a whole other retreat and learn many more rituals and then serve at the great monastery and, 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 and then come back and you were finished with a little certificate. Um, and the Americans, Dido Lurie and Les Kay and, and all, all the people who had trained with Japanese teachers but were not Japanese, said, we're not going to do this. This is ridiculous. So they said, we'll set our own place up. And they did. And finally got Sotoshu to agree to that. And so we had a ceremony. I was a part of the ceremony. I did not have to go to Japan. I just had to go to Portland, Oregon. It was quite cool. (laughs) And those American students who had received it in Japan were the ones who gave it to the rest of us who had not been to Japan yet but were ready to go. So that was very, very sweet. And I think there'll be more of that. Um, It turns out that Soto Shu is not happy. It turns out that although they said it was okay, they're having second thoughts. So I don't know what this means for us in the end, but it doesn't really matter. (laughs) It's just a gesture. I'm curious how, um, kind of referring to what someone had asked previously, and I've sort of come from um, more of sort of a traditional Judeo-Christian family, and I think a lot of Americans have had that experience, and so you have a sort of adverse response to uh, devotion, which is sort of the opposite of what you find in Asian cultures. So we sort of have, you know, in the West, our own devotional practice, which is to like, you know, rational thought and we like to do a lot of reading and come up with our sort of grand yeah. theories, and so we have our own sort of devotional practice, which is just absurd as what they <laughs> like to do in Asia, as far as I can tell. But um, you know, all of this, um, I find it easier to to deal with certainly on my own, and I often sort of find myself kind of pulling away from community and just going back to sitting by myself, so I don't have to deal with these things, but when you, you know, when people start kind of putting you into positions of, you know, you know organize this, or you kind of start taking more and more of a role in you know, part of a song or part of a community, there does become this demand now that you sort of put aside your, you know, uh, non-dualistic thinking and kind of embrace this, well, what is right view and what is right practice? And um, at some level, you know, I do, you know, have a problem with, um, I mean, in terms of you know, trying to understand what the Buddha was saying about you know looking at everything around him and being like you know you know get rid of all that craft you know like focus on yourself. Um, yeah, I guess hope I'm being clear. A lot of these, I mean, a lot of the devotion, a lot of these things, I think, can become a distraction. Um, like, you know, just as we can get attached to the ideas, we can get there's all these things to attach to outside of ourselves to take refuge. 
and even you know when I hear people sort of saying, well, you know, what are the, what's the triple gem about? Sometimes I sort of you know cringe. You know, I guess it, to me this is you know again it's sort of about looking within yourself, you know, finding the Buddha, finding the, the Dharma as what's out there, not you know what's contained in a particular canon. And I guess the, the question amongst all this stuff is you know since you you have been kind of such such an important member of a sangha, and you are, you are placed in this position of you know, kind of handing down to people, well, this is right view, this is right understanding, this is right practice. How do you kind of reconcile that conflict between kind of providing that very... I understand. How do I talk about the untalkaboutable when um, that's my job? Uh, or in... in in establishing Jikoji, I, I hardly had time even to practice. I, I had to say, uh, calling up the insurance company and uh, dealing with the plumbing and finding a good carpenter and doing something about the quarreling of the caretakers was my practice. Uh, and it was my devotional practice for 12 years as, as I was uh, part of Chikoji Sangha. Um, anything can be your practice. It's your, you put your finger on it, it's about attachment. And the triple gem itself can be either uh, uh, um, a hindrance or a help. It, Devotional practice is not about attaching to anything. It's the opposite. So it's true of anything that you study. Words are just noises that our bodies make. And we give them meaning. And then if we reify that meaning and think it's real, think it's something out there, then we bog down. I sometimes have um, a hard time because I do a lot of talking and so I do a lot of studying and I'd love to study. I'd love to read the sutras. I love to read the commentaries. I love to read Zen and Tibetan, Mahamudra, all of it. It just absolutely fascinates me. But at a certain point, I feel like I'm overfed and that it's all words. And, and yet, words can be a, a, a tremendous help to us if they point to the untalkaboutable place. So if you get caught by words, attached to words, you um, lose the, uh, your alignment, you could say. Lose being in touch with yourself and your practice and your life. But if, you, if words can help you, point you where you are, then they're extremely helpful. And it's very helpful for us to have a whole quiver full of wonderful pointers. Um, some help some people and some help others. So it's useful and also a drag 
just depending. Does that answer it? That's when it's really rich. (laughs) 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 Well, thank you very much.